You're listening to the smooth, mellow sounds of the Messed Up Church Podcast. Welcome to the Messed Up Church Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Kozar. I recorded that intro when I had a cold and I could make that really low voice sound like a uh, easy listening disc jockey. Anyway, welcome to the Messed Up Church Podcast. This is the show where I try to talk about things that will be really helpful to you in this messed up church. Promise not to insult your intelligence or waste your time as much as possible. I'm going to play a recording from a few weeks ago. I talked to Marcia Montenegro about an article on her website on the topic of Ann Voskamp's book, 1000 Gifts. Had a really great conversation, and without going into any details, I'm just going to go ahead and play that now, and I'll say a few words after the interview is over. I am on the line once again with Marcia Montenegro. I love saying that name. It makes me sound international, even though you're, <laughs> you're, you should be in Spain or Paris or something. But anyway, welcome, Marcia. Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. I know. We, we talked yeah. months ago about doing this follow-up podcast, and I've been terrible about doing this. But, you know, what the heck? I'm just a guy who's doing this in my free time. But last time we got right. together, we talked about, um, oh gosh, what did we talk about? It wasn't, uh, was it Jesus Calling? No, it was... I think I think it was Jesus Calling. Was I'm it? not sure. I know we did that. I'm not sure. We did talk about that. Time. Boy, talk about yeah. doing my research, huh? I don't even, I don't even remember. But we did, we did say we, we were going to follow up by talking about Ann Voskamp's book, 1,000 right. Gifts. Right, right. And you wrote an article uh, actually a long time ago when the book came out, and we're going to use that as an outline. And as much as possible, I really want to direct people to your website because you have a ton of articles, a ton of research, and there's just so much good stuff there. And uh, it's ChristianAnswersForTheNewAge.org. And uh, if you just type in, you know, Marcia Montenegro, New Age, to Google, you'll find it right away. You've been blogging right. for a long time. You've got a great ministry, and I don't want to do a long intro here. I just want to get right to it. Um, tell me a little bit about what this book um, is is good for. What what are some of the good aspects to her book? Well, um, some of the some of the good aspects are she does em- emphasize uh, that even when bad things happen, that the Lord the Lord is good. And that we um, should cultivate a sense of gratefulness uh, to the Lord. Mm-hmm. Uh, so she she does point people in that direction, which which is a good good direction. And um, I think she writes in a way that is very open, so that a lot of people who read her, you know, relate to her issues, especially women, Mm -hmm. um, although I think men could too. But I think that um, she's kind of transparent in her writing about herself and her own doubts or worries or fears that she's had, uh, which is a good quality in a writer. She's not trying to come off as having all the answers or being all together, you know, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And pointing to the Lord as, as ultimately, you know, good and that we can trust him. Sure. So those, those are positive things about the book. And it's a wildly popular book. Before we got on the phone here, (laughs) I looked at, uh, on Amazon, it was published in 2011. And as of today, it has 
2,652 customer reviews with a 79% five-star rating. So a lot of people like this book. Wow. That no, is, that's a lot of five-stars. And that's, a, that's just a lot of reviews in general. I mean, most books, yes, yes. If, if you have a couple hundred reviews, you know, you're doing pretty good. To have thousands of reviews means, you know, millions of these books must be sold. I don't know what the, uh, the exact number is, but it is a New York Times bestselling book. And I have not looked into her uh, biography in great detail, but I understand that she started as a online blogger before she was writing actual books. Is that correct? I think so. Mm-hmm. Yes, I, I have. I am not an expert on the details of her history either, but I think I know she has a blog, and right. I think that she perhaps started with that. Right. Yeah, and she um, she really has a unique style. It's kind of a polarizing style. Some people really think it's distracting. Other people find it refreshing and kind of creative. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. I don't really want to go into too much detail about her writing style. I think, honestly, I, I right. find it to be a little pretentious, a little over the top. But you know, yeah, I, I do. I do too. I think it's a little. Sometimes it sounds a little contrived to me. Like she's trying too hard. You know, and, and yeah. uh, maybe that's not the case. Maybe she genuinely feels like, you know, this is her personality coming out. This is the way she wants to write. Whatever. That's fine. It's not a big deal. Right. Um, it's more about, you know, the actual content. In fact, your article is not even, you start out by saying this is not a book review. It's a commentary only on two issues of concern that you have with the book. And so, right. uh, I think that's a, kind of a healthy thing to say um, whatever your feelings are about a person's style or um, a number of secondary issues at the core when a when a writer is writing a Christian book and they're talking about God this is what I was thinking about before we got on the phone today no matter what they say they are talking about theology and I think it's really common for people to say you know this isn't really about theology this is just about the Lord yeah. this is just about my feelings yeah. about the Lord or whatever however they phrase it if you're talking about God you are talking about theology because theology just means the study of God or beliefs about God right and so right. she has a exactly. she has a, some specific theological ideas that she's putting forth in this book and because of that and not in a personal way against her as a person, but it's important to just theologically look at, are these ideas that we can agree with as Christians because do these ideas uh, agree with what Scripture says? Right. I, I'm, I'm doing what I tend to do in these podcasts. I, I feel like I'm doing it again. I'm, I'm talking too much. Here, I have you on my show, <laughs> and I'm, <coughs> I guess I'm setting you up to let you talk some more. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's talk about those two things. I'll get a drink of water while you talk about the two things that you wanted to bring up in your article. Okay, yes. The two major areas of concern that I had about this book and that I wrote about in my article are um, the nature of God as she presents God in many ways in the book. She presents a panentheism, not pantheism, which I know we're going to discuss in more detail. And the second issue was the erotic language that she uses about God and Jesus. Um, This is especially strong in the latter half of the book, uh, and that was there was enough of that that I found that to be disturbing and also unbiblical. 
So I addressed that as well. And those two issues would cause me to not recommend this book. Okay. So it's it's fair to say this isn't a gigantic personal indictment of her or a lot of other secondary issues, but at the core, there are some serious theological problems with the actual yes. kind of core foundational beliefs that, that are showing themselves in this book. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, that's a that's a good um, kind of a disclaimer to make. You know, I, I think a lot of times when people read a book and it makes them feel good, it makes them uh, <clears throat> maybe get more excited about their relationship with God in some way. They think it must be good. It must be, you know, of value. And so mm-hmm. I think it's important to say, well, whatever your feelings might be, um, feelings come and go. And it's possible that your feelings have been manipulated in a way that weren't entirely helpful. They actually might be uh, counterproductive if, if those feelings are um, leading you to have a, a kind of this, oh, I, I now you know feel differently about God. I feel stronger in my relationship with God. But it's actually taking you towards the wrong version of who God is. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that was done in the shack as well. There's right. a lot of emotional yes. content to that book that led people, I think, into accepting some of the ideas he put across or some of the things he said about God or Jesus. And I think it's very similar with this book because it starts off with a story of when she was younger and her younger sister was killed in a very tragic accident on the family farm and how this was very devastating hmm. to her emotionally and apparently still is a very deep you know grief and scar in her life and this kind of, of tragedy is something a lot of people of course are going to feel very sympathetic towards maybe even identify with if they had a similar uh, trauma in their life and that's you know, at the very beginning of the book, and she refers to it in the book later. Um, and so this is kind of an, I'm not saying she did this deliberately, but it serves as an emotional hook hmm. that that makes the reader feel sympathetic towards the writer and therefore more tolerant, perhaps, towards theological errors right. that might crop up. And that, I see, is one of the, the dangers of this emotional content. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm thinking about how I've done some public speaking, mostly as an artist, but no matter what kind of public speaking you're doing, or I think it's very similar if you're a writer, if you get the sympathy of the audience, whatever your intentions are, once you get their sympathy, you can now say a lot of things and people are much more open to believe whatever it is you say because they sympathize with you. They relate to you. Right. They see you as right. an honest person. And all of that is not good or bad. It's just a, it's just kind of the way things are. And I think it's good to be a little bit, um, I guess, skeptical or discerning as Christians to say, okay, I I, I relate to this person's transparency, and I can see that they're, you know, opening up about a painful event in their life, and that's not a bad thing. You know, it's it's good to be honest. It's good to be open mm-hmm. about difficult things, but that doesn't validate everything that comes afterwards necessarily. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. So let's let's maybe talk about that idea of um, where you see um, panentheism. Would that be a good place to go next? 
Yes, definitely. And I think that before I talk about where I see it, I should um, try to explain it. (laughs) Um, Because um, it's not pantheism, which is God is all and all is God. Pantheism um, identifies God with creation, so that they're basically the same thing. And God is literally part of creation, and he's in creation, he's part of it, the rock, the tree, you know, the river, everything has God in it, Um, somehow God is mingled in there. Now, usually this kind of view would have God as impersonal. It'd be hard to have a personal God that's creation, although people can do that illogically, but (laughs) logically speaking, it it is very logical. that, that a view is a view most Christians would recognize as not being harmonious with Scripture. They would right away say, no, I know God is not the tree. I know, you know, that when I pick up this rock, I'm not picking up God or part of God. So they, you know, most Christians would, would agree with that. Now, panentheism is much more subtle. And so in panentheism, and I want to say right here, I'm not an expert on it, Um, there are various types of panentheism. So there are different kinds of panentheism, and that makes it even more complicated than pantheism. But the basic idea is that God is in creation, and creation is in God, but God also transcends creation. Yeah, he's somehow separate from creation. Yeah, and they'll and they'll say some panentheists will even say God is distinct from creation, but still He's present in it. And they don't mean by that they don't mean omnipresent. So we have the biblical um, view of God, which is uh, it is a, a sound doctrine to say God is omnipresent, which means that God is everywhere, and that is because God cannot be contained. He can't be contained in space or time, because he's God. I mean, he created everything um, out of nothing, and you can't say, well, God's over there in that part of the universe, but he's not over here in this part of the universe, you know, or he's on the other side of the world right now, but he's not on this side of the world. So basically, that's what omnipresence means. It means that God can't be contained in any locality, because that is the nature of God, and he's spirit, so he's not a material form that can be contained in another material form. Um, so that is biblical. But in panentheism, they, they blur the line. So they'll say, well, yeah, God isn't identified with creation, but he's in it. He's still part of it. He's still, he's still with us in creation, and he's also beyond it. Now, what makes this idea very dangerous, because some people might say, well, they're just, you know, putting it a different way. You know, they're just redefining omnipresence. But the problem is, is that when you explore panentheism, you find that in panentheism, this view makes God subject to change. So God reacts to things and is subject to change, and in more extreme forms, uh, from the neo-Orthodox people like Whitehead, uh, they even say God learns and grows hmm. as time goes on from his interactions with man. 
And so you, you can even go to that extreme. Hmm. So panentheism basically changes the nature of God from how he's presented in Scripture to this other kind of nature where he's impacted. Because if God is in creation, and somehow his nature is connected to it in such a way that it cannot be disconnected, then you have to have God reacting to things that happen, and you have to have him reacting to time, and he becomes temporal. Hmm. And there are some even respected theologians today who will say, well, yes, God puts himself in time, and so he is temporal when he wants to be temporal. But whenever you say God is temporal, which means he's in time and subject to time, you've got a God who is going to then have to change, because being in time entails change, because you're going from second to second and moment to moment. Would so, the um, would the concept of open theism fall into that category? Uh, yes, usually open theism is is part of this, and that mm-hmm. gets even more complicated because <laughs> it's it is another view, but it it tends to be um, or at least some of it tends to be panentheistic, and um, that has more to do with God's knowledge. Right. God knows the possible future. And that's another area, and I, I, I know less. Of, I know some things about it, but I know less about it than panentheism, so I don't want to say the wrong thing. Sure. But um, yeah, these can these can mingle, and so when you have this view, it's not just kind of another view of omnipresence. You have a view where the nature of God is now temporal and subject to time and impact from things going on in time. And it can, but the thing is, it can sound okay. You know, it can sound, and and at first when I was reading this book, I was, I was pretty much giving her the benefit of the doubt and just thinking, well, she's just writing poetically. You know, she's using a poetic phrase that sounds nice about God. You know, when I look at the moon, I see God. You know, this kind of thing that yeah. you might say in poem because you're saying, well, God created the moon. So now look at the moon. It reminds me of God. So at first, I was giving her the benefit of the doubt that this was just part of her style and a poetic way she had of talking about creation and God. However, it, it you know, it got more and more uh, common in the writing and became too blatant for me to excuse. So I had to, you know, I had to start paying attention to it. Um, Let me just go back to panentheism again. So I I wanted to say another thing about it, just so people understand it better. If you have any kind of theology where God is, his nature is such that he had to create, like if someone says, well, God had to create, that's part of his nature. You know, he's a creative God. He had to create um, you're tying creation to God's nature and making God no longer is he independent of creation, but now he's tied to it. There's some kind of compulsion in his character or nature that causes him to create. That's panentheism. Hmm. And, and, you, and you often find that, with, well, you do find that in panentheism. So that's why the attributes of God, the classic attributes, are so important that God is self-sufficient and he's non-contingent, which means that 
alone, without creation, the Trinitarian God has no need of anything else at all. No need of creation, any creation, no need of the universe as we know it now. The Trinity, the Trinitarian God is completely self-sufficient as the Trinitarian God with nothing else, and there's no need for anything else. And God is not dependent on anything else, which is what contingent means. So God is non-contingent. Panentheism makes God contingent. Hmm. So there is the, the classic attributes of God are definitely changed in panentheism. This is one reason why it's so important to, to you know, uh, pay attention to it. And then um, I also want to say something else before <laughs> before I go into some examples from the book. But um, a lot of people who who like the panentheistic idea or seem to find it biblical uh, or theologically sound will use verses from the Bible, such as Colossians one seventeen, and he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Okay, and people will will quote that and say, well, see, you know, in him all things hold together. Well, you know, you have to look at everything in the Bible in context, of course. And I actually discuss this verse in the article, and I give a commentary on it, which is, was typical of many of the commentaries I read. It, it, it's basically God's power is holding everything together because he created it. And so everything is sustained by the Lord. Um, if he desired not to sustain it, well, everything would could fall apart, conceivably, you know, if that's with God's will. Um, so this is talking about God's power and that we all exist because we depend on him. Creation depends on him. Mankind depends on him. So when uh, we read in him, we live and move and have our being, which Paul is quoting actually in Acts 17 from a pagan poem, hmm. the uh, biblical understanding of this is not that we're literally inside God, although that's a view too called Christian idealism. <laughs> huh. <laughs> uh, yeah, another one, another view, which I'm not going to get into either because I know even less about that. But this is when you look in the context of scripture, you can see it's about God's power that we're all dependent on Him. Our very, the very next breath we take is dependent on God because we are contingent beings. We are dependent on God, um, on His will, on Him giving us the next breath. Um, and so there's another one too, Ephesians 4:10. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Now, in this case, fill means to fulfill and to complete. So this is about completion, bringing everything to the point that God is wanting to bring it to. Um, Because God has purposeful actions in what he does. He's not a random God just doing this and that because, you know, whatever. Uh, I'll do X, now I'll do Y. You know, God God is a God of order, so things that happen are happening, happening orderly according to God's time plan and His will. So there's something going on that God is working through events and people as, as, as how He chooses to do to bring things to a point where he's bringing them. And that's that's what that's talking about. 
So people need to be aware that that there are verses that will be misused, and all you have to do is sometimes maybe look up uh, the meaning of the word in a, in a lexicon, look up commentaries, read it in light of the context of the passage, sure. read it in light of scriptures, and you can see that it's not endorsing panentheism. So those are very important points to keep in mind, because somebody not familiar with this who first hears about it and then someone throws one of these verses at him might really be, you know, kind of thrown off for a minute, you know, like, oh, wait a minute. Oh, gee, maybe that verse is saying God is in creation, you know. So um, it's easy to get thrown off when people quote some of these verses. Boy, that, um, now, that happens you know, a lot. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very, very common. <laughs> um so she talks about God in several places. She talks about seeing light in the soap bubbles, and she says this is where God is. And she describes a bubble trembling and then says the space is holy because there's the God in it. Hmm. Um, okay, now this is over the line for me uh, because this is a soap bubble we're talking about here. It's not even the moon or something like that. And she says two things about it that make it panentheistic and that the space is holy because the God in it. No, God is not in the soap bubble. And um, I don't know, you can admire the colors of a soap bubble because God created colors, and we can see them when the light hits the soap bubbles, like sometimes like a little rainbow. Um, but it is not because God is in it, mm-hmm. and it shouldn't make us think that God is in it. She also makes God temporal. She says God is framed in the moment, and this this statement is just very crystal clear uh, in terms of it being theologically incorrect. And this is a quote, Time is the essence of God, I am. Yeah. Now, that phrase there, time is the, that is, to me, that is saying time is part of the nature of God. I mean, essence of God, I don't know how you can get around that. It sounds yeah. like time is part of God. Right, it's very clear. She's making a very definitive statement. Yes, yes, this is an assertion, mm-hmm. a theological assertion. And so I hope anyone who reads that and has read it stopped to think about it for a second, because then that means God, time is somehow either tied to God in some way, he's in time, or he can't help but be in time, and he's subject to time. So this is a big problem, and actually the I am, I am that I am, uh, that is said to Moses is more about, it's a God's eternality, it's God being, just existing, having no beginning, no end, and he's living. He's yeah. a living God. Of right. course, there she's, were the She's turning the it into, I am. She's, she's making it sound like when God says, I am, he's saying, I'm right there in the moment with you. I'm part of yes, time exactly. with you. Yeah. Exactly. That's, that's, the, that's, that's what it sounds like to me, too. And and so, yes, God is with us because of his omnipresence, but time is not part of his nature. 
um, if it was, he would be he would have to change. And as I said earlier, because time entails by definition moment to moment, mm-hmm. you you can't be in time and not you know like when we were talking three minutes ago, that was that was three minutes ago, and we were both talking, and uh, now it's three minutes later. Okay, so time has moved on. Um, and we are in time, and I know you can get into philosophical things about whether time exists and all that, which I'm not going to do. Sure. <laughs> but, you know, we're, <laughs> we are moving from moment to moment because we grow and change. You know, I might like um, carrots this year all of a sudden, whereas before I didn't like them. I mean, they're obviously in my age, so we're subject to time. And... And so putting time with God is very dangerous because yeah. it changes God's nature. And he's in, then he has to be impacted by time. And if God goes from moment to moment, then he's going to be different from moment to moment. So it's, it's very uh, disturbing. That sentence probably was one of the most disturbing phrases in the book for me. It was you know, definitely one of I, I'm, a, I'm an artist. You're a big art lover, too. So we both appreciate the beauty of creation, for sure. And we both yeah. really uh, are—we um, we love the fact that, that the beauty in creation reflects God's nature. It shows us kind of a—it's uh, it, it's really hard to look at the beauty of nature in the world around us in a million different ways and not say, wow, God is an awesome creator, God is a wonderful God who gave us this beautiful world that in spite of the sin that we we see the results of as well, we also see a reflection of his, his majesty in the beauty of creation. So that's something we all agree with. So it's like she's taken that really core idea and she's just gone too far, hasn't she? And turned it into yes, something different. Yes. yes, because she does clearly appreciate the beauty around her. She lives on a farm and it from her description sounds very beautiful. She appreciates the land, you know, the earth, uh, the animals on the farm, the the sky that she sees, uh, which I assume is not, you know, messed up by tall buildings or anything where she lives. So she can see this beautiful, beautiful stretch of sky at sunrise, at sunset, and she's surrounded by all this beauty which I believe has a huge impact on her and that she is trying to express in this book. And, and she does she does express the beauty, but the problem is she tries to put God in it as though he's part of it. And that that is where you, uh, somebody has to draw the line as a Christian when you're reading this, because we have to be careful about the nature of God. That's where... That's where the most serious heresies are. They're, it's when you mess with the nature of God as presented in Scripture, because changing who God is just changes everything. So that's why it's so important to understand who God is from Scripture, mm-hmm. and then notice when variations, serious departures from it, you know, occur, especially if they're over and over again, not just somebody saying something the wrong way one time, but in this book where she's saying it over and over in many different ways. And so um, that those were a couple of examples, and she goes on and writes writes about more. You know, going, I mentioned the moon. She goes outside one night to see the moon, 
And she says, sky, land, and sea, heavy and saturated with God. Uh, you know, see, I just, I might say heavy and saturated with God's beauty, you know, or, or, or saturated with the beauty that, that God, that God is able to lend to creation or because God, you know, I, I would just say it a different way. I wouldn't say it was saturated with God. Right. Because it's not saturated with God. So she, you know, that's another another problem there. And I also um, remember, I don't know if it's in my article, but I remember, and I think it is, I, I remember that she, she's going somewhere, I can't remember if it's a homeless shelter or somewhere where they're feeding people, and she sees these people, and she sees Christ in them. Okay, that's another thing I've actually heard from a lot of other people, but she says it very seriously. Right. Uh, so it's another example of her seeing God or Christ in everything. And she sees the natural world. Now, now she, I want to make clear, she knows what pantheism is. And at least a couple of times in the book, she says very, very adamantly that she is not a pantheist. And she says, I am not a pantheist. I realize pantheism is identifying God with creation. I do not believe that. So because she disavows pantheism, that also, I think, causes people to not catch the problems with her panentheism. Right. They've let their guard down. Yes. Yes. Let their guard down. And I can only conclude from that that when she wrote this book that she may not have known and still may not know what panentheism is. And as long as it's not pantheism, then she feels she's in the clear. Hmm. And, I, you know, that's that's my thinking on it. And that also is a problem because she's so clear that, well, no, I'm not a pan, pan, pantheist. And then, you know, I'm thinking, yeah, but you're expressing panentheism here, which, <laughs> which really is, in my opinion, just as bad. Uh, because it's still an error on the nature of God, and it's more dangerous because it's more subtle than pantheism. Hmm. You know, I want to make something really clear. As I think about this, um, we as Christians have a, a, a holy book. We believe that God has revealed himself in Scripture, that uh, out of all the things that God could have done, he created the world, and he revealed himself in his word, and he redeemed the world. So he didn't give us uh, an infinite number of words. He gave us specific words that are contained within Scripture. That's what it means to be a Christian. You believe that. And because we believe that, we have to now say these other things cannot be true because they violate Scripture. They're opposed to what God has revealed. So I think um, it's—we live in such a pluralistic a culture, you know, um, I think there's a lot of people who they want to be open, and it's good to be open in a sense to learn. It's good to be open in a sense to say, I don't know everything, and I'm open to learn more. That's good. But when you say, I'm open to the point where I want to learn anything, even if it falls outside of Scripture, well, now, now you're you're in great danger of actually losing your faith. You know, you're you're going to start believing things that aren't contained within Holy Scripture. In other words, you're starting to believe things about God that aren't true. Now, if God doesn't exist and we're just making all this stuff up, well, you can make up whatever you want, <laughs> right? We, we could believe all sorts of crazy stuff because it's just making us feel good. It doesn't mean anything. It doesn't do anything. But 
to be a Christian means you believe specific things. And so for anybody who's listening to um, to our conversation now and is thinking, oh, my gosh, come on, give this lady a break. She's just trying to express herself. It's just poetic language. Um, yeah. I don't think that's what's happening here. I think that, uh, Marcia, what you're saying is really, really important, that if we're Christians, we have to believe what the Bible says about God, and we have to reject everything that goes against that. So regardless of what we think Anne Voskamp's true intentions may have been, we don't know her heart, you know, obviously. Right, but, um, right. But these are uh, really abstract ideas, and I think sometimes it's easy kind of to be lazy, you know, about abstract ideas and say, ah, who knows? No, actually, Scripture has revealed things about God. And if he, if God has revealed himself, he, he does expect us to believe those things that he has revealed and to reject those things that he has revealed to be false. So, Right, and he's revealed very specific things about his nature. Right. And, uh, and so I think it's very clear. That's why I think it's very clear to see that panentheism is not compatible with Scripture. And that's what I try to show in my article. And I also try to show that I'm not... I'm not... Um, misinterpreting her, mm-hmm. because I give as many examples as I can without having, like, an ultra-long article. <laughs> yeah, but there's <laughs> a lot. I try to give several examples, mm-hmm. you know, and there's more than what I give, but I want to give enough to show I'm not just reading that into what she's saying, or she it's not just because she's poetic and, you know, two or three places, but this is an ongoing theme with her. And, um, I mean, she, she creates, she, um, equates the moon with God's eye, the moon with God's face. She talks about God manifesting in the world. Um, and she talks about God stretching us open to receive more of himself. And then the experience, uh, the activities of nature are God's experience. Hmm. Okay. We touch God when we touch nature. And God seeps through all things. Now, these are just some of the some of the quotes that I piled on here in one paragraph to try to show that there are several. And and like I say, I don't think she knows. I don't think she knew when she wrote this that she was expressing panentheism. And so she may not be theologically intentionally trying to be a panentheist. But that is what she expresses here. And so I think the reason to write this article is not to try to claim she's uh, um, some kind of panentheist, because I I really don't know if she is or not. But we have to look at the book, and if it's expressing this view clearly, and this view is against Scripture, we need to expose it. I'm just amazed so, that you know, that's, um, where I, that's where I come from. You yeah. know, I'm not trying to attack anybody, but I when people when Christian writers write serious theological errors, I think it needs to be exposed. I'm surprised that you know this. I I shouldn't be surprised. This is a Zondervan book, which you know Zondervan's a gigantic Christian publishing company. I can't believe there isn't anybody on the staff that looked at this manuscript and said, hmm. Uh, this isn't actually Christian, you know. This, but they yeah. they publish all sorts of things. I've, well, I think they were bought out, weren't they? Bought out by a secular publisher. Yes. A lot of the Christian, uh, yeah, publications. But even the ones who haven't been, and before 
they were bought out were still publishing bad theology. I yeah. no longer I no longer assume a Christian publisher means a book has sound theology. No. I mean that went out the window a long, long, long time ago That's when true. I was a fairly young Christian. <laughs> Back in the nineties, yeah, <laughs> so the same I, it doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> the same giant uh, conglomerate that owns uh, a lot of uh, publishing in general also owns Thomas Nelson and Zondervan. It's the it's the Rupert Murdoch um, conglomerate owns a lot of publishing. Oh. Fox News uh, just they have their hands in all sorts of media all over the world, and right, they right. and they would say that we left Zondervan to still have its own editorial staff and same with Thomas Nelson but right I, right I don't know what the deal is it's crazy you know I I, uh, I don't go to Christian bookstores you know I I don't trust I, I it's it's just really sad that we have to tell our Christian friends if you go to a Christian bookstore and you think that they're all Christian books you're just sadly mistaken yeah there's yeah there's too many bad books and that that's why you know actually we shouldn't not only not just trust Christian bookstores, but we shouldn't really trust other Christians in terms of discernment for all things, because other Christians can be wrong. You know, uh, and this, I'm saying this over and over again in my ministry because I hear it a lot where someone has, someone has accepted some kind of teaching or practice because a Christian does it or told them. Mm-hmm. You know, well, so and so, Marianne is a really strong Christian at my church, and she does X, Y, Z. Right. You know, and I, and and it's clearly, and this is not like a gray area. I'm talking about something that's clearly not biblical or not theologically correct. And you know, I have to respond. Well, I'm not saying Marianne isn't a strong Christian. She very well may be, but just because she's a Christian, that doesn't mean she's perfect in her discernment. We are we are responsible, each of us, for discerning for ourselves, and we shouldn't, you know, I, 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 I we shouldn't just completely trust somebody else. Now, sure, we should people that we know are 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 sound, and you know, maybe we have a pastor who we trust because he has given good biblical advice. And I'm not saying we shouldn't seek that out from mature Christians who we know really know God's word, but we seek it out with the understanding that this this may be good advice, but I am going to, you know, pray about it. I'm going to make sure that this advice is scriptural. We can't just accept it and say, oh, okay, you know, especially a teaching or a practice that is unfamiliar to us. We need to really check those things out. So we're each responsible for being discerning. So just because you get a book at a Christian bookstore or a Christian gives you a book <laughs> does not mean it's a good book to read. Right. So this is one reason these books are popular is because they get popular in the church and they're given out by, you know, sometimes by pastors, sometimes by the pastor's wives, by the uh, women's Bible study leader, or they're recommended, maybe not, maybe not given out, but recommended. Um, and that's one reason people read them and find them, you know, they don't, they're not discerning for whatever reason, or they, 
overlook it. Like they might read something that may bother them, but they think, well, but you know, right. Um, I know, you know, the, the five women who lead the women's ministry all say this is a good book. Exactly. There's an idea that... I don't that... want to put the whole thing on women because, I mean, men, men, men's groups have had bad books too, but I'm more familiar, you know, I'm more familiar with what goes on more with the women and these kind of books. Uh, like the one we're discussing, tend to appeal more to women. Sure. They, they oh, for sure, this one does. In fact, that that takes so us— So that's why I'm, I'm not trying to make it sound like women are the only ones that need to be careful. It, 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 there's, a, there's a whole um, issue of American culture in general, in my opinion, and I could back this up big time— American culture in general believes what the experts tell them. And how do you know they're experts? Well, because they're on TV. They have, you know, gigantic book right. deals. They're famous. If somebody's famous, yes. they're instantly validated by the fact that they're famous and they're well-loved. And right. so that's a that's a really flawed way of looking at things right from the beginning. And so we have a Christian version of that that says if they're famous Christians with a giant church or a giant book deal and everybody refers to them, that must be because everything they say is true or almost true or close to being all true. And um, I think I think you've really I think you've really hit the nail on the head. Um, Dave, I really do, because that's very true. It's it's partly a cultural thing. Mm-hmm where we have these famous writers and celebrities and their books sell and everyone loves their books and stands in line, you know, to buy them. And so there's this this general impression that, well, this must be a really good book. It has good things to say. This person has, you know, something valuable for me. And and you're right, that is in the church as well Mm -hmm. with the Christian celebrity writers, and she's definitely one of them. And so there's this, and and then she has a lot of theologians who support her, and actually a bunch of them got together to defend her on the charges, because uh, I was not the only one pointing out that ero- as far as the erotic language goes, mm-hmm. I think the panentheism is more serious, but the erotic language, which I also talked about in my article, uh, four or five well-known Christian, you know, famous people got men got together to defend her really? on that point. Yes, and there's an article online. Um, I'll have to search for it. There's an article about it and how they spoke up and, and they used examples like the Song of Solomon. So after that article came out, which was after my article, after my article was already done and online, um, I, I came across that or somebody gave me the link and I read it, uh, and I think I added something to my article. I'm going to have to look and see. I thought I had about the Song of Solomon because, oh, yeah, I did. I, 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 um, I added it, and I mentioned that many defend, defend what she said here by pointing to the Song of Solomon. But here are my three differences. First, the Song of Solomon was written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Okay, and Voskamp's book is, is not, I don't know whether it's Bocamp or Voskamp. I say Bocamp because I think it's a French name, and I, I French was, I learned French when I was really young. Oh, <laughs> and I know you don't say the S, but she may say it as a French Canadian. They may, I don't know, French Canadians may do it differently. And I think I've heard other people say it, so I'm probably saying it wrong. Okay, so and and Voskamp is not writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's Secondly, kind of important. The song depicts two human lovers. Whereas Anne Voskamp places herself as a lover with God. Mm-hmm. 
or God as her lover. And thirdly, I would not be embarrassed to read any passage in the Song of Solomon aloud to others, but I would be embarrassed to read parts of her book. Yeah. Now, that's a very subjective reason, the third one. But I thought I would throw it in there because I thought about it, and I thought, okay, well, let me really think about this. Would I be willing to sit there and read Song of Solomon to a group of, of, of a, mixed, a mixed group, you know, men and women? And I thought, no, there's nothing in it. I, in fact, I went through and read it again after I read this article defending her. And uh, there's nothing in there that's sexually provocative, and, you know, it's, it's the imagery that's used there. It's true poetry. Song of Solomon has true poetry in it. It's true poetry, and it's beautiful, and it's it's very elevated. It's not what she does, which is very sexual. Mm-hmm. And some of the words she uses, I mean, they're just very sexually suggest, suggestive in a very uh, cheap, I don't know the, any other word for it, cheap kind of way, you know, like reading a, a book, a novel, one of these bodice ripper type yeah. <laughs> type novel. Uh, and so I know I jumped from panentheism to this part, but I wanted to mention that because I've gotten that a lot from a lot of people. Like, well, what about the Song of Solomon when I've raised this issue? So I wanted to address it before we got to the end okay. of the program, just yeah. so that that's out there. And I do have that paragraph that I, I just basically kind of uh, paraphrase that paragraph towards the end of my article well, after I talk about the erotic language. Give give us some quotes from your article that are quotes from her book. And the uh, and the erotic. Um, yeah. I yeah I call it theological theological erotica. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I sort of made up. I think I made it up. I don't know. I fly to Paris and discover how to make love to God. Well, that's been quoted by a lot of people criticizing the book because yeah. it's such a blatant thing. Um, but she, you know, that's just really just the beginning. Um, she talks about being flesh, one flesh. Um, Christ and the church will become one flesh. Okay, now the thing is, one flesh is the union of husband and wife. And is, is you know, it means they're one, but it also means physically they're one. This is This is the whole thing about marriage in the Bible is that sexual union is part of physical marriage and that God designed designed it that way. He designed us that way. So um, even though it may imply more than a physical union, it definitely includes the physical union. Okay, and that's it's not sexual. Christ in the church is not a sexual thing. She talks about God as husband in sacred wedlock, bound together body and soul, fed by his body, and a mystical love union. That's all on one page. That, hmm. And then, and I didn't even I didn't mention the long embrace and the entering in. Hmm. That's all on the edition I had, page 213. And then I wrote after that, I don't want these images in my head. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't, uh, you know... When I'm reading the Bible, this, these are not the images that come into my head, you know, and, and Buck can't put them there. Um, she goes on, she uses um, the terms of uh, making love again with God. She, she uses make love, actually, that phrase several times. Couldn't I make love to God to know him the way Adam knew Eve? That's just weird. 
It's just really okay, weird. Now, the way Adam knew Eve, well, that's sexually. Right. You know, no, we can't know God sexually. That's that's very, there's no basis for that at all. Why she says that, it's very hard for me to understand that. I can't relate to that at all, and I don't know what in her causes her to say that. So that, that sentence right there is pretty blatant, okay? Um, and she talks about Jesus as bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And that comes straight out of Genesis 2.23, where Adam is describing Eve. His, you know, Eve was made out of his side, but it's also showing a union. Okay, well, Jesus is not the bone of my bone and the flesh of my flesh. Okay, he, he did add humanity to his nature, but it's certainly not like the relationship of Adam and Eve. I want to be in God and God to be in me to exchange love and blessings and caresses. Okay, that's pretty blatant. And then she uses words like interchange, intercourse twice, disrobed, and declaring how this intercourse is, quote, the climax of joy. So you got the word climax put in there with intercourse and disrobed. Yeah. I mean, I mean the, the, the images that come from this clearly in our culture, in today's language, are, are extremely sexually provocative. And she also talks that she wants to burn with a flush of embarrassment up the face. And this is all in the context of this sexual language. And these, these are pages, uh, these last quotes are pages 217 and 218. They're all there on those two pages. And then she goes on a couple of pages later and uses terms like love drunk, a lot of words using, um, a lot of words with union in them, one holy kiss. So it's a, there's a lot. Here again, I didn't just pick on her for one or two phrases. It was only because she just had it over and over and over again, and I just gave several examples. Um, this, this eroticizing God's love is not only unbiblical and repugnant, but it belittles God's love. Right. And it's this is not what we mean when, or it's not what the Bible means when it talks about God's love. So she's cheapening God's love here, uh, very strongly, in my opinion. And there was just so much of this, you know, it was just revolting. And I, I know I read one person's comment after they apparently read the book, or at least read parts of it, and this person wrote, I wanted to take a shower after I finished reading this, <laughs> which described my feelings exactly. Um, and you know, the thing is, you can't shower your brain. Yeah. You know, once you read these words, they're in there. And so, you know, I told people, look, you, you don't want some of the images uh, in this erotic stuff. You do not want these images in your head. Hmm. Um, it reminded me a lot of there's a cult called the family that used to be called the children of God. Yeah. And they were very set. A lot of cults are sex oriented, but they were very open about it. And, you know, would, would send women out to bars to pick up men and even have, you know, to lure them with sex. And that was supposedly to, you know, supposedly to bring them into 
Christianity, but of course it was a, a cultic Christianity, so it wasn't biblical with a lot of false teachings in it. And then they even began to have sex with children. Ugh. And I actually, several years ago, um, I encountered a couple of people from the family. There were some hearings the University of Maryland about cult recruitment on campus, and some members of some of the cults were attending these. <laughs> and I went to the website um, because uh, I was I was I hadn't looked at any of their teachings in a long time, and I was just curious. And I was reading some of the writings of the leader that were very sexually provocative about Jesus. And I I mean I read one, and then I was just saying to myself, oh, I wish I hadn't read that. Hmm. I so wish I hadn't read that. It took a long time for that to get out of my head. Hmm. And I felt the similar way reading this. Very similar. Um, And actually, I don't really see that much difference between what she says here and what I read on that cult site. Hmm. You know, as a man, I find this even more... uh, What's the word? Um, not not just revolting, but um, you know, it's like why, why would I want yeah. to think of God in that way? Especially knowing man, that God is yes. a man, you know that. that Especially oh. yes, it's, see, I think it is. I think it is worse for men. Right. I do. Well, and, and, and it's it's like. Um, we got to get more men to come to church, not with this kind of stuff. This isn't going to help. This is only going to make things worse, you know? I wonder if this occurred to her at all when she was writing all this, that she was writing as a woman, and I wonder if it ever occurred to her, well, how would a man feel about this? Is a man supposed to feel these same kind of things that I'm writing and that I'm feeling? I, I don't know if that occurred to her or not. I, obviously because obviously not. it wouldn't make sense to say, well, it's okay for women to feel this way, but not men. Yeah. Because, I mean, then you've got all of a sudden this strange difference in relationship between men and women and their relationship to God, which doesn't make sense. So, you know, I, I don't know if that ever occurred to her, but that these these theologians got up got up there and defended her. That's crazy. It's even more appalling. Hey, we've only got a few minutes because I want to. I don't want to go past my normal hour time that I'm trying to stick right. to, and exactly. we could talk all day. But give us a um, a little background about uh, mysticism and how this is really, in a lot of ways, just another version of mysticism going back hundreds and hundreds of years. Oh boy! Well, there are books on mysticism, <laughs> so I will try to give you my little nutshell, sure. uh, basic understanding. Traditionally, mysticism has been defined as union with God without a mediator, mm-hmm. um, and I think that the way to understand it now, the best way to understand it, is that it's very experience oriented. So this is trying to experience God or the divine, however one may want to define it, because you have Christian mysticism and you have pagan mysticism, you know, you have New Age mysticism, um, and they aren't all exactly the same, but they all incorporate experience. So Mm -hmm. things are based on experience, and you're trying to have a spiritual experience or experience God or know God just through experience, but the experience is something that you initiate through a technique or method or practice. So you're initiating, because it's not wrong to have experiences from God. You know, I've had experiences where I really experienced the presence of the Holy Spirit, for Mm -hmm. example, 
during worship. Mm -hmm. But it happened as a result of the worship. I wasn't trying, you know, I wasn't trying to do it. I wasn't trying to get an experience with the Holy Spirit. So it's when we initiate it, we either say something, we chant something, we, you know, dance, do a, a dance like the Sufis, or um, we think that we can conjure it up in some way by being still through, uh, like, contemplative spirituality and mm -hmm. contemplative prayer. We're still, we breathe a certain way, we repeat a word in our mind, whatever, just any technique. And you think that's going to initiate an experience, a spiritual experience or an experience with God. That is, that is how I see contemporary mysticism hmm. being practiced. And that is dangerous because we are, by doing the practice and thinking we're going to get something from it from God, we're making us in charge. So I do this, then God will do this for me, or I will feel God, or I'll experience God. Yeah. And it's because I'm doing this technique. Well, that's pagan. That's what pagans do. Mm -hmm. and they it also, do techniques and practices to get God to respond or to experience God. Exactly. And it, it has with it this gigantic assumption that what Jesus did on the cross was not enough, that we've got to get more, we've got to get more, right. we've got to get closer. Right. God's, God's sitting there with his fingers crossed, just hoping that we'll take all the steps necessary to get close to him. He wants to be close to us, but we're not doing our part, is always the uh, kind of the way it looks. And it becomes a trap, and it, it becomes like a, a, a real burden, I think, for most people, because it sounds so... Um, kind of the emotional and exciting at first, but eventually you realize you're you're really not getting close to God. You're going down a million different rabbit trails, I think is what happens to a lot of people. Right. Well, experiences are addictive. Mm -hmm. And so if you start to have them and you feel spiritual or, or you feel close to God because of it, then you want to do it more. But, there, but experiences are also temporary. So they mm -hmm. come to an end. Right. And then you have to do it again. And then, and then what happens as a, as a Christian is it's no longer, you know, reading reading the Bible or studying the Bible is no longer satisfactory because you want some kind of mountaintop experience, and you get addicted to that. So, you know, you try all of these techniques, and it's just a, it's an endless, mm -hmm. but it's a bottomless hole. Basically, right. you're never right. going to get to the end of it, and so then you neglect real Bible study, the real richness of a relationship with the Lord, which, of course, is only through faith in, in Christ and what he did on the cross, the real richness of that relationship is is really spending time in God's Word, mm -hmm. spending time in, in prayer, spending time in worship, you know, fellowship with other believers. This is how you get the really rich experiences, but they come as a natural product, and it's not always this mountaintop thing. It's an ongoing you know, ongoing contentment and peace that you get from knowing the Lord. And, you know, maybe experience is, is too shallow a word for it, but that is much richer than these temporary kind of experiences that people think are some kind of mountaintop ecstatic thing. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good way to summarize. And, uh, I, I, we're we're at the time where I need to stop, even though I just love talking to you, and it's always so much fun. <laughs> so let's do this again soon. There's a million topics we can cover, but hopefully for everybody who's listening, this was you know helpful. It came across with the the right tone, the right um, you know sense of we, we we want people to really be close to God for sure. But there's just ways that you think you're getting close to God when actually you're getting farther from God. 
Right. And that's that's a, a right. terrible thing when it happens because it leads to so much confusion for so many people. So hopefully um, what you've said and what you've written, Marcia, will help a lot of people clear those things up. So thanks again for being with me, and let's do this again soon. Oh, great. That would be great. Thank you so much, Steve. I enjoyed it as well. Good. Well, there you go. There's my conversation with Marcia Montenegro. I really appreciate her coming on and spending an hour of her time to talk to me. I hope, I hope you found that as uh, interesting and useful as I did. I also wanted to say uh, thanks to you for listening. I know it sounds like a trite phrase, but I really do mean that. I know that uh, you could do a million things with your time, so you spent that with me. Appreciate it. Hope you really found it uh, useful and helpful. And I also wanted to say thanks to Chris Roseborough for giving me a kind of a, a, a blog or podcast platform at Pirate Christian Media. I really appreciate that. And uh, you can find my prints at the bake sale, which is basically the store at Pirate Christian Media. I forgot to mention that last time I did this. But I have little affordable prints. They're only $30 there. So if you're interested in my art, which you maybe don't even know about, I kind of forget to mention that. I'm an artist for a living. I make paintings. They're really, really good. I mean that. If you don't believe me, go to stephencozar.com and you'll see my artwork. That's what I do for a real living. But I really enjoy doing this podcasting, blogging stuff, and I appreciate everybody who listens and thinks I have something valuable to say. So until next time, uh, thanks again, and I'll talk to you soon.